0: At what
1: point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room?
0: And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Glad to be joined again today by Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. How are we this morning, Josh? Doing pretty well. Yeah,
1: were you up late watching election returns? I was actually up late watching a U.S. soccer game that nobody cares about.
0: Well, did they win? They tied. It's soccer. It's soccer. So they tied. It was, So so so. Do we interpret that as a win or not? I can never. Under quite,
1: the, under the circumstances, it was in El Salvador. The field was terrible. There was a lot that happened. So I I think the the tie was a pretty good takeaway because again, it's it's soccer.
0: Go USA. So there you okay, go. Okay then. <laughs> That's I our that. message. Go USA. I
1: was gonna say we really hit our sports quota for the year. Yeah, no, we're, I think we're now, <laughs> I mean, we're, actually,
0: we're a little, actually, I think this, we can cover some of it in the next year. Well, I was
1: say, we might talk about gambling at some point. So. <laughs> well, that'd be good. <laughs> There's that.
0: Uh, we right. haven't hit our gambling
1: quota. <laughs> no. So uh, as we us. record
0: this Wednesday morning, we were, you know, kind of prepped up to talk about one thing, which is sort of the, which we often got this called the strange case of John Cornyn, but we'll come back to that. We're still going to talk about that. But, you know, the the kind of leading political news in Texas, to the extent that there is something like this this morning, is the special election that concluded yesterday. Um, There were various elections, some primaries all over the country, you know, lots of narratives around those elections, the main one being how successful was Donald Trump yesterday. We're going to set that aside for now. But there was a special election in Congressional District 34 in South Texas centered in Cameron County yesterday. That have been getting a lot of inside baseball attention in the state, if not as we see from turnout, you know, really there, or <laughs> right? Yeah, much not, of anywhere else, not from the voters, right? So, not but. from the voters, but certainly from from Every, those of us and people listening to this, right? Um, you know, and, and that was, as I think, was pretty widely anticipated, won by uh, the Republican candidate, Mayor Flores who won with a you know, little 1,400, 17, 780 votes to give her just over 50%, almost 51%. Um, and she bested the the leading Republican, Dan Sanchez. The leading Democrat. or I'm sorry, the leading Democrat, Dan Sanchez, by yeah, seven and a half points or so. He had 12,560 votes, 43% of the vote, and then a couple of uh, other more or less also Rans though they do kind of enter into the story, Uh, Another Democrat got a little over 4 percent. Another Republican got about a percent and a half Um, in in an election that had a, you know, in which just under 29,000 people voted. Mm -hmm, Which is about – just
1: to put that in context, that's about – 20% 20% of like let's say midterm turnout in CD34 if we look at the last midterm and it's about a, just a little over 7% of registered voters in the district.
0: And so you know this story now feeds you know a, a, an ongoing discussion that's come up in this podcast and that is you know in some ways omnipresent in discussions of Texas politics um, and, and national politics for that for that matter, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, looking at the coverage today to the extent that, you know, this Texas and the national coverage and this race is sort of kind of down below the fold, if you will, of kind of looking at what happened last night. There's a quote from uh, Elise Stefanik uh, Steph- Stephanie. Stephanie of New York, who basically said, you know, Meyer, you know there's a quote. Meyer has sent a resounding message to the Democratic Party in South Texas and across America. Democrats do not own the Hispanic vote. And this is like a really nice encapsulation of kind of the ongoing message that the more yes. offensive version is, you know, Republicans are on the march in South Texas. And this is like, you know, the example, example one, or actually really example two, I suppose. The 2020 yeah. election was example one. And here is the continuation of this. And so, you know, that's kind of the framing. You know, the Democrats are pushing back against a little bit, but not very much because they didn't put much money into this race. Right.
0: So, I mean, Democrats did, you know, one of their typical. Yeah, very, uh, you know, it's either one or the other, it seems to me, but they, you know, in this case, it was they swung on the lower rank, you know, chronic lowering of expectations piece, not without reason, as you were about to go no, into. No,
1: not without reason. I'd also say, you know, there's, you know, I thought you were going to say, you know, the third Democratic thing is either like, all right, we're going all in. We're just going to spend a ton of money, outsiders, whatever, or there's the Democrat. No, we're not going to do this. And then the last minute. Well, we are going to put some money in because right. we don't want to lose too badly here now. And nobody
0: wants to get blamed.
1: Nobody wants to get blamed. Although uh, right. Dan, Dan Sanchez was very clear in blaming Democrats actually for not helping him. Yeah. But anyway, you know, I think there's a couple ways to look at this. I think one, we say, you know, why shouldn't we make too much of this result? First, just, you know, we say this all the time. Right. It's true in Texas, true other, other places. Special elections are strange creatures, and they're not generally predictive of future outcomes. They really
0: lend themselves to over-interpretation. They lend themselves
1: to extreme overinterpretation. interpretation Just, you know, as, like, as a pollster, just example here, right? You know, we say, okay, are registered voters, you know, in, in a certain area representative of, you know, all adults? We say, well, not really. There's some differences, but they're not too far off. Are likely voters representative of registered voters? Well, not exactly, but they're not too far off usually. You know, are the people who turn out in a special election in June in Texas representative of registered voters or likely voters? Not Not really, (laughs) right? And I think there's a really, here's a good point. To make this is, you know, uh, Flores got 51% of the vote. The Democrats combined got about 47%. But if we look at redistricting, CD 34 was a plus four Biden district before redistricting, and it's plus 15 and a half after redistricting if we take those numbers and update them. So this is a seat that is, you know, widely expected to be held by the Democrats. It's low turnout. Uh, you know, Republicans really made a show of trying to win this race. Uh, but the general election uh, Democratic candidate, Vincente Gonzalez, did not run, who's also a right. long-tenured incumbent from a neighboring district with a lot of money and a lot of resources to put in the race, significantly right. more than than the Democratic candidate here. But, they,
0: you know, they were, they were screwing with him when they redrew this district. Well, they year. absolutely,
1: yeah, right. they were definitely yeah. screwing with him. And then also, I mean, but I mean, he obviously also made a tactical decision not to run in sure. this special election. I should also say, like, you know, this is something that happens here in Texas kind of regularly because of the nature of our, our, our cycles and, and everything where we do have end up with these kinds of races for someone to represent a seat for like a few months. Yeah. Now, why should we pay attention? One, it's not that like representing that seat is valueless. I mean, this is sort of a political science thing real quick. You know, she can start using the stationary.
0: Yeah. Right. She I mean, will get to run in the general – she'll have to run again in the general election, okay. and she gets to run as an incumbent. But
1: she gets yeah. to run as an incumbent, and there are advantages to run an incumbent. She can send mail to the district. So these little things do – they are helpful, yeah. right? I think it's another example – You know, One of the things political science is not wrong about. Not wrong about. It. It's Advantage
0: true. of incumbency.
1: Yeah, mail. <laughs> it's the mail. <laughs> so uh, also under sort of the heading of why we should be pay attention, you know, it's another example of Republican attempts to make inroads in South Texas. And more, more broadly, although maybe not, we'll get to this. With Hispanics. Yeah. Right? So this is, you know, part of this ongoing narrative that I think Yeah, this is an
0: overwhelmingly Hispanic district.
1: Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, no. It's overwhelmingly Hispanic. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we can go into this, we don't have to, but it's an overwhelmingly Hispanic district. It's a it's overwhelmingly poor district. I mean, the median income in that district is about half the statewide median income. I mean, you know, significantly less college education. I mean, it's a it's a rural, it's a rural district. But I think that's actually the point here we gotta get to in the however, which is you know, South Texas is not necessarily representative of all Texas. Number one, Texas, is a very urban state. We've talked about this in sort of our yeah, podcast a little right. while back, which you can check out about sort of, you know, thinking about the Hispanic vote here. But ultimately, you know, South Texas, uh, not super representative of a state that includes some of the biggest cities in the country, Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio. Like, I mean, this is a very urban state, not to mention the fact that, you know, the whole idea, you know, that quote that I read, you know, Democrats do not own the Hispanic vote, just to point out. The Hispanic vote in a, in a rural county like this in South Texas, while again, even in this county, extremely democratic, is not necessarily representative of where the vast majority of Hispanics live in the state of Texas, which is right. basically in and around the state's urban areas where Democrats keep making gains. So this is an ongoing discussion. We've talked about this. We'll come back to it uh, for sure. But, you know, just to kind of put this all into context, I think, you know, there's a, there's a desire on the Republican side to say, you know, this is this is indicative of so much more. And I think, you know, on the Democratic side, there's also, to some extent, you know, I think a desire to maybe go in the other direction a little too much and say, oh, none of this matters. It does matter. I mean, ultimately, Republicans right. are are picking up a lot of low-hanging fruit in South Texas and around the Rio Grande Valley where they really have not campaigned. Yeah. And the same thing, same thing about uh, Mar Flores good candidate, right? I mean, seems to be a good candidate, well-funded, you know, has a good message. You know, she can play into some of these current, you know,
0: discussions we can go to another time if we want to. But, you know, ultimately that makes a difference. And it was a, you know, it was a well-chosen target of opportunity for Republicans. I mean, there's been, people have talked for a long time about, you know, Cameron County is a good opportunity for Republicans based on some specifics of things that have happened there and who's there. Um, So- you know, I, I guess the you know we needed to comment on this at least a little bit. It's the big news. I mean, I think we'll no doubt come back to this. I mean, it does underline this interesting you know dynamic of you know we're I you know we were talking about this before the podcast. We're in this constant position of saying, hey, this doesn't this you know this doesn't mean nothing, and it's not right. It's not completely idiosyncratic, but context is really important here, and and I think there is still a lot of unmined context in terms of not just republican efforts which you mentioned that i which i think are important and and have been done in a in a very strategically and tactically smart way as you were sa- saying before i mean it's uh you know it's you have you, you know in, in a case like this you get not only the win itself right but you get the discussion of the win and the way that the that the messaging and the substance of it yeah. kind of are mutually supporting Um, And what gets lost here is that I I think to some degree in, in explanation wise is that the Democrats are really having to retool in a system that they've taken for granted for a long time and that is very, in a lot of ways, dysfunctional in that part of the state.
1: Yeah. And I mean, just to, you know, we were talking about this before and I'll just rephrase, I'm just rephrasing something, but I want to say it because I like the way I said it, so I'm going to say it now, which is, you know, it's one thing to have a narrative and it's another thing to have a strategy to execute it. And you can see with Republicans, they are doing both. Now, the fact that the narrative is obviously, you know, sort of blown up a little bit and kind of expansive. I mean, that's politics. So there's no reason to yeah. you know hate on that. But I think what you're seeing is, you know, Republicans are delivering on the strategy. And as you're right, you know, Democrats right now don't really have a counter to the narrative, whether they need a counter to the strategy. You know, it kind of depends on what district you're talking yeah. about, right? And and But but even so, having said that, I think Democrats are in a tough spot right now because what do you do? Just say, well, look, we've got the, like, I mean, this district is a great example. Yeah. You know, this is nearly, you know, plus 15 Democratic district. Do we really need to fight this narrative so aggressively? You're really just giving, you know, the challenger, now the incumbent, weirdly, right. right? all this extra oxygen, all this extra energy to even bring this up, right? At the same time... I don't know if, you know, the the, the strategy of silence is really going to work, yeah. you know, multiple cycles down yeah, the road. Yeah, I mean, they just, you know,
0: look, the Democrats haven't figured it out. No. I don't think in terms of the how to talk about it and how to, you know, let alone the strategy, you know. But, I mean, I would add to that just one last bit that, you know, what the Democrats have – what Democrats have frequently said in the past is kind of, well, you know, this is exceptional and, like, this really is, like, our thing. Yeah. And that's part of the problem. <laughs> so – well, you know, yeah. because you know, you don't really don't want to start digging into why it's their thing entirely. So
1: yeah, neither do they. Right,
0: exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, the you I meant them. So the Californianism, yeah. I guess. Right. Now, the other big story that sort of intersects Texas that we want to talk about is uh, Senator John Cornyn's leadership in trying to get a bill passed by the Senate that can be seen as a response to the mass shooting in Uvalde. And I say, you know, trying. I mean, on one hand, I think. You know, the odds seem to be getting better as this unfolds, but, it, you know, it's still kind of a long shot. You know, the basic math of this is, you know, Cornyn has been uh, involved in bipartisan efforts to craft some kind of a bill that will attract enough Republican votes to make it filibuster-proof. So we need they need baseline 10 Republicans without losing Democrats. Right, without losing any Democrats. Right. And so... As a result of that, you know, we should say (laughs) the bill by obvious design does nothing to directly affect access to guns or to direct the supply of guns directly. And so it's got enhanced background checks for those that are under 21, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you could argue – has some effect on access. but well, I, and, and
1: we'll see. I mean, of all the things, I think has the least chance of making it to the finish line. We'll see. Right.
0: But, you know, at least it's in there right. at now. Funding for mental health, funding for school safe, federal funding for mental health, federal funding for school safety. In both of those cases, I think that would be money that would filter down in large part to the states. Mm-hmm. And then funds for states with, you know, quote unquote, red flag laws. Though Cornyn has been very quick to point out that there's no pressure on states that don't have red flag laws. Right. And he's very clear about saying, we are not trying to promote these laws in right. any way or subsidize them or push the states around. And there's a sort of quasi hysterical well, I mean, emphasis on this.
1: And, and he's quick to
0: point yeah. that out. Well, I'd say he's going
1: almost even a little further, even almost to say, and if we are in that space, we are going to have to make sure that we are protecting the rights of people who do have guns, which really kind of tells you that right. if, if, if the federal government does get involved in state-level red flag laws through this mechanism, expect it to be a very, very constrained set of circumstances. Yeah, very indirect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, you know, the bill is getting tons of attention and political analysis in the national and state press. We probably don't have to delve into it very much, but, you know, we don't need to overly parse the bill probably, but the politics of it seem apparent. And, you know, it, it raises an interesting point from the perspective of being on the ground in Texas politics. Um, and, and a point that we've kicked around a bit—that's driven by both polling data and the arc of, of Cornyn's career and the arc of Texas politics, you know—and that is, you know, as we started out, what we've, we've referred to over the years as the strange case of John Cornyn, which is really—I um, just
1: say—it's refers to his polling numbers. Well, right. Directly. Well, I was going to say yeah. Cornyn
0: comes up in discussion <laughs> right. of almost every statewide poll we've done. As an underperformer in terms of public opinion, he's in his fourth term as a U.S. senator, yet is almost always lesser known than other Republicans elected statewide, all of whom at this point have currently served statewide for a shorter time than he has. And perhaps more tellingly, he's less popular than these other Republicans among the most dedicated Republicans and conservatives. Right. And so what does that tell us what that data looks like a little bit?
1: Yeah, let me just paint this picture real quick. Yeah. You know, we've been asking, you know, job approval numbers about all the statewide office holders and both senators for, you know, quite a while now. So just to sort of pick out kind of where we are and, and just paint this picture. So, you know, for example, the the lack of sort of familiarity with Corman is a first sort of strange thing here. Since 2018, no more than eighteen percent of voters have been unwilling or unable to give a a, a rate, a job approval rate for Ted Cruz, example, whereas at least 22 percent cannot provide a rating for Cornyn and on average close to a third. So, I mean, the idea, again, that he's been in office for for decades, you know, he's been involved in the mix, he's been in leadership positions. And yet, you know, you ask Texas voters, you know, do you approve or disapprove of the job John Cornyn is doing? Nearly a third on average are like, yeah, I, uh-huh. yeah, I don't know. right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's sort of the first kind of strange, you know, thing. Then we can look, you know, among Republican uh, Republican voters who really are determining what's kind of the leadership and direction of the state, right? And so we can look at overall job approval. And what we find is that, you know, Cornyn really, you know, tops out at about 70 percent overall job approval among Republicans. Greg Abbott, that usually has been about his starting point, is about 70 percent or above. Cruz is normally around 80 percent. And Trump never was below 80 percent. So there's at least, a, you know, right. a 10-point gap or more right. between— not, not a
0: Texas Republican, but now our universal benchmark. Yeah. And
1: now our universal benchmark. <laughs> But then we can go and, you know, the other thing is, you know, we've been talking a lot on this podcast about, you know, the the weight that, you know, Republican primary voters carry in, you know, sort of in Republican politics and in turn in politics in the state. So we can look at strong Republicans. We also and, and conservatives. We also look at intensity of approval. Right. Because ultimately, you know, you can say I approve. I strongly approve. I somewhat approve. And. One of the things that's interesting here is, is that this is where we really start to see the gaps right. come out. So when we look at strong Republicans, so people who say, you know, I identify as a Republican. Now that I identify as a Republican. I'm a strong Republican. The share who strongly approve of John Cornyn is 25%, one in four. For Ted Cruz, 63%, 38-point gap. Among conservatives, so just people who identify as conservatives, 17% strongly approve of Cornyn, 49% for Cruz, a 32-point gap. Now among extreme conservatives, so the people who say, I'm a conservative, not that I'm extremely conservative. The share strongly approving of Cornyn goes up a little bit to 20%, but for Cruz, it's 62%. So it's a 42-point gap. So, you know, this is kind of the the broad thing. And, you know, you notice it in one poll, you say, oh, that's interesting. But then you notice it over and over again through election cycles and through events and happenings, right? And it's still there. And so there's some other just more general trends I'll just lay out here that we, that we notice, which is, you know, Corning has this, you know, where's, I'll say this, once people learned about Cruz... especially Democrats, Cruz's numbers stay... Pretty stuck where they were for the yeah. most part. And I'd say the same has been. He true. got a
0: pretty clear profile pretty early.
1: Yeah, you know, <laughs> Abbott had a little bit more bouncing around, you know, over the course of his governorship. That's a whole other story. But over, but and again, that's mostly having to do with Democrats. But over time, you know, he's climbed up, and the idea is he kind of just sort of sits where he is and kind of sits in. The thing about Cornyn is that he comes in and out of people's consciousness, yeah. right? And it's sort of you know the election, and I, and I, and I should say this: I'm not saying this in any sort of critical or cynical way. It's just the nature of w- the way he I think approaches the office. But as you get closer to the election, you know, he starts kind of, you start seeing a little bit more John Cornyn in the public. He starts seeing a little bit more tweets, a little bit more activity, a little bit more, you know.
0: And the, and the content begins to look.
1: Gets a little sharper. Yeah. A little more elbows. And then his numbers start to rise. I mean, we saw this during the last cycle he was reelected. Yeah. You can see his numbers start to pick up among Republicans. He started getting up with, And then it just as soon and just as sort of calmly, the, the water recedes. The election, yeah. You know, the election's over, water recedes. And he kind of goes back into this, I'll say relative obscurity, you know, compared to sort of the other people. Right. And so this is kind of what we've been watching, and, and it does sort of lead this question, I mean, because we've been talking about, you know, again, the, you know, how far to the right the Republican legislature's yeah. gone, all this stuff. And in some ways, you know, you almost look at it, like, has, has Cornyn somehow, like, cracked the code on this? I mean, we're, we look at Republicans in the scene and say, you know, a lot of what we're seeing is really driven by the politics of Republican primaries. And then you look at John Cornyn and you say, like, interesting, does this guy have like a, a bulletproof vest somewhere for the, you know, the that's actually a terrible analogy. But for the oncoming that he gets, you know, for some of the some of the stuff that he's—I don't want to say willing, but I'll say—and this is kind of where everything gets very complicated for me. I'm going to pass it back to you because I think there's just too many things going on here. But it allows him to either, you know, do the, do these things in areas like gun control that either he's willing to, but then I would also say, or is it able to? And it, yeah, and, and, and we don't, and we don't, you
0: know, and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that I think we have to make sure we put on the table here that it's—I think it's easy for us to forget—is that there is a. Baseline institutional factor here, mm-hmm. right? The Senate is designed to provide for this model. Right. Right. You have the long, you know, six asi- years aside from aside from the lifetime terms of judges, you have, you know, the longest political term of federal officials. Right. You know, the, the longest term, you know, uh, uh, you know, delimited, uh, time in office. And so look that, you know, he's behaving the way you expect a senator to, you know, or at least version if if they don't have and you know and that's where the Cruz contrast becomes interesting right because one might say well you know well then why doesn't Ted Cruz just do the same thing and and you know if you wanted to be a little nasty about it you could say you know whatever I think of John Cornyn you know he's an institutional player who has gained institutional power Mm -hmm. and you know does in some ways what a classic senator wants to do which is you know, if you want something from the federal government and you want, you know, something from Congress, John Cornyn is going to be like a stop you got to make in a way that Cruz is not. Well, the obvious explanation that is that, you know, Cruz's ultimate goal is not the Senate. Yeah. Well, you know, the, which he's made, you know, I don't think we're casting aspersions on something he's made no, perfectly well, clear. It, Mitch
1: McConnell didn't tap Ted Cruz to lead these negotiations. Right. Exactly. And, and I'll say, and when, when, when Mitch McConnell tapped... John Cornyn to lead the Republican side of these negotiations. I think part of the deal was clearly. I mean, everyone started yesterday, like, "Oh, McConnell's on board." It's like, yeah, McConnell was on board if he could get ten votes. Right. I mean, I think yeah, that was right. part of the or nine.
0: Right. I mean, I think that was part of the the deal. Yeah, I think it's become pretty clear that there's not. Yeah, I. Burning policy concerns outside of things for Kentucky is not really what drives Mitch McConnell. I think, I think that's fair. I, <laughs> Again, I think fairly, so, I think that's fair to say without so, seeming...
1: It's so funny that you say that, because on my walk this morning, when I'm thinking about what we're going to talk about today, I was thinking, how do I say this about Mitch McConnell yeah. <laughs> in the right way? Well, know? I'm a,
0: uh, ever the diplomat. <laughs> I was going to
1: say, he's, I was like, he's driven, if not primarily driven by, you know, power politics. Yeah. Right. And,
0: and, and you know, and is adapted very well to a very to a much more partisan environment right um, and and helped further that environment so you know i mean on one hand it's like duh right you know john cornyn like does his thing he's and got then six years as reelection comes by because you know and again this is a, an artifact of the fact that he's seems to have the job he wants
1: he's not looking to go to higher office right i mean seem... he, i mean he
0: obviously you know pretty clearly would like to move i think yeah. would like to move up in the senate but that's that's sub job, right? So, but that's
1: a good point, though. I just want—I mean, yeah. we don't have to sit on it, but I mean, like you know, then this is sort of also the strange case of John Cornyn because I said, and I think you know, for people who don't know, I mean, I think something that's kind of important is you know, leadership positions in the Republican uh, caucus in the Senate are term limited, right? So John Cornyn worked his way up the leadership structure as far as he could as long as Mitch McConnell didn't leave. There's right. one, there's one position that's not term limited. and It's Majority Leader or Minority Leader. So Mitch McConnell has been in that position. Cornyn moved his way all the way up. He was the whip, which is, you know, the vote yep. counter, which is why he has, you know, is still maintains and is someone they can go to because he has a lot of relationships. But also, I mean, I think a good point is like, you know, in a, in a different world without Mitch McConnell or if Mitch McConnell retired or whatever, you know, John Cornyn is someone you would say. He's one
0: of two or three people that are positioned to be the yeah, next guy. Exactly. And look, he does... You know, he does leverage incumbency effectively when it comes to fundraising, scaring off potential opponents, mm-hmm. as you as you're saying, advancing in the caucus. You know, and for all his seeming, you know, vulnerabilities, whatever we call the strange case, he's never been in danger of being outspent by an opponent in either a primary or a general election. Right. And I think other than for fundraising purposes, there's never been a sense that, you know, Cornyn was in trouble. I was going back and and getting ready for this, um, and we should fly. Abby Livingston wrote a great story, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a great profile you know assessment of Cornyn's position for the Texas Tribune. And Abby was the until very recently the Washington correspondent for the Texas Tribune. That kind of you know made a, you know drew a good portrait of that. And when we post the podcast, I'll put a link to that in there. And again, and this gets to sort of. Looking at this from another perspective or from another set of data or another frame, you know, our sense, you know, Ted Cruz puts John Cornyn in an interesting light. I mean, nobody would ever j- confuse John Cornyn for a liberal unless you're a far reactionary right Republican trying to cast aspersions on him.
1: Yeah, or I would say, you know, I mean, the one thing about Cornyn, though, I would say that benefits him is, yes, no one would confuse him for a liberal. However, He does, you know, I would say, create a profile for himself that, you know, fits a different era, right? I mean, in some ways, you know, I'm coming, you know, if I'm I'm originally, I've been in Texas for a while now. And I came in really when Cruz came up and and really was coming up and and after the Tea Party, around and after the Tea Party wave, where Cornyn seemed, you know, increasingly anachronistic. But coming from the Northeast, I was like, this guy, I mean, besides the boots and the way he talks, this guy could be a Republican in, you know. What
0: we used to call a Rockefeller Republican. He even looks the
1: part. Well, he very much looks the part.
0: (laughs) Now, you know, so you you raised the history piece. I I also think that, you know, when you look at Cornyn's rise and you look at, you know, how he's positioned, you know, we were talking again before the podcast about one thing that's interesting about making this argument is that, you know, we kind of put this in the context of the Texas Republican Party becoming more, you know, And I'm going to qualify this in a second. But, you know, from 30,000 feet, more conservative. Mm -hmm. Then you adjust that and say more dominated by the far right conservative wing of the party. Right. You know, but, you know, one of the things that's interesting about that, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, is that, you know, when we went in a few months ago and we compiled, you know, ideological identification party uh, identification trends over time within each party mm-hmm. one of the remarkable things is that at least as long as our data set goes back to 2008 there's not been that much movement i mean it's like the republican party has increased drastically in the share of people that identify as conservative in the way that the, the party democrat has. party has on the liberal side right yeah. it's just you know you start it's fairly consistent over time that, you know, it's a huge amount of people. But it's the nature of that conservatism, perhaps, that is changing and that has changed under Cornyn. And remember, Cornyn's political career doesn't start in 2002 when he got elected to the Senate. He was a judge before that. He served the term as attorney general. And then with the support of, you know, a state-level ally, George W. Bush and his political team and and that what do you want to call it? That faction within the Republican Party that was fairly dominant at that moment. Um, as politics begin to shift in Texas under Rick Perry, with the you know the burgeoning rise of Republicans as they get adjusted to power, the nature of conservatism changes. And mm-hmm. we were going to talk about this historical trajectory, but it also we can double back, and it also informs this question of the nature of conservatism because one of the things that happens to conservatism. In Texas and elsewhere is that it becomes more intensely Mm anti-institutional. And that's Cornyn's issue here, right? Yeah, I mean, Cornyn is like the institutional Republican. Well, shh. In terms of. Don't tell anyone. Well, I mean, but see, the thing is, what we've just described is that they know. Yeah, I guess that's right. They know. Well, some people know. Some (laughs) people know. Right. I mean, well, you know, the people in that gap between the Ted Cruz approval level among extreme conservatives and the John Cornyn approval, those are the people that know. You know, you know, it's interesting. I I think that's a big part of it. You
1: know, there's something about the ideological trend discussion that I was thinking, you know, the kind of that you were saying that made me sort of think of something else in our data, you know, and and when we were looking at sort of the, the last the last big upheaval, you know, if you will, if you're thinking about, you know, ideology as a sort of thing that's kind of filled with these various, you know, components. I and mean, there's a lot of ways you can think about ideology, but let's say it's filled with these various components and salience and issues and directions and whatever, right? But the last big one, I would say, sort of upheaval was a Tea Party wave before Donald Trump. Yeah. And the interesting thing is we used to ask this question, you know, about Tea Party identification. And we also used to ask this other question that I think is really kind of, I think it's helpful here, which is, you know, basically, you know, regardless of, you know, whether you're like thinking of yourself as part of the Tea Party or not, you know, basically, you know, do you basically do you think the Tea Party is a good influence? Like, do you think they have more influence in the legislative right. process or less? And what's interesting is even the people who didn't identify with, who were Republicans who didn't identify with the Tea Party expressed an overwhelming amount of tacit approval of the Tea Party's influence on the party. Right. And here's what I would say. The direction did not go the other way, probably, right? So it wasn't as though yeah. the Tea Party members were looking at sort of, let's say, that other wing of Republicans, the the business, right, whatever, and say, yeah, no, we're cool with what you guys want to do, too. It's like an agreement. It was, it was a one directional piece. And I think we're seeing that repeatedly, right? We kind of see that with sort of the disintegration of the business wing of the Republican Party a little bit, the continued fighting between sort of the center right and the far right for agenda control and those pieces. And the center right has certainly stayed mostly in the driver's seat, although that's kind of, you know... Yeah. coming apart a little bit. But in some ways, you know, I mean, the other thing, I mean, the piece to this is that, you know, even for those really conservative Republicans who don't really who look look askew at the business wing at the center right wing of the Republican Party. And I always say this. They're not voting for better O'Rourke. Yeah, they're not voting yeah. for a Democrat. So ultimately, yeah, they can express right. all this sort of discontent throughout, you know, the five years. After, for the five years after John Cornyn was elected again. But once we get around to the election year, it's not hard to bring him back in the fold and say, hey, look, you know, we agree on more than we don't.
0: Yeah, I think what that underlines is, you know, one of the things that, you know, we grapple with a lot. We grapple with it just compositionally when we're writing about things. But there's a conceptual issue here yeah. about, you know, I think there's almost like a reflexive, you know, sort of conceptualization of the space you know the ideological space here and the labels we impose on it. Yeah. Like, we, like when you said like center right and far right, yeah. I'm kind of like, well, it's you know. And, and again, we've gone through this a bunch. Yeah. It's sort of like you know the distance between what we're calling what, what it just yeah. and you were yeah. just you know yeah. on the cuff simplification. But, right. but what we often just try you know to sort of use language wise as well. There's like the center right and the far. Right. You know, there's not that that distance is not uniform. In other words, if you look at the center, if we were to take a, a, a seven point scale. Yeah. The difference between, you know, the distance between extremely conservative or, you know, mm-hmm. and somewhat conservative, whatever, is probably not as broad as one might think yeah. and, and that you know and we were well, we were grappling with that on the tea party thing and the you know this notion of like well, passive versus active support well, or identification and
1: all well, we were grappling with this on the tea party thing and i think in a similar way that we're kind of grappling with now which you, you've walked up to in this discussion which we seem to keep talking about which is you know what is the content of conservatism and i think there's yeah. an idea that you know when we simplify it and think of it as being in one you know sort of one dimension is what we're talking about it's on a line right, we, right. and they have distances we can place them you're saying yeah to on the right side of the of the middle point of the line you know, this sort of quote-unquote whatever you want to call it is closer, you know, moderate, you know, center-right business, right. whatever, chamber of Commerce Isn't that far from sort of the extreme, right? But the interesting thing I think is that, you know, with the Tea Party wave, with Donald Trump, you know, what you've seen is, is you've seen, you know, the content of, you know, what it means to be a conservative, at least the emphasis of what it means to be a conservative shift or maybe yeah. consolidate. Maybe there's a little bit less variance. And so what I think of in the analogy is like, well, it's kind of like the line shifting a little bit. And the idea is, is I think, you know, a lot of us kind of look at this and say, oh, well, now the line, you know, the line has kind of shifted on its axis in a way that like, you know, what now represents the far right of the party is really happy with. But surely that means that they must be even further away because they're in another dimension. Right. We move them up. They're, yeah. not, they're not only on the line. We move the line up. So now they're further well, away. Uh,
0: you know, I was just going to say it's another, dim- you know, the problem is dimensionality. Right. Here, but, right? but I
1: mean, but I think the point I was is like there's no evidence in any of these upheavals that this sort of, you know, again, this center right, this moderate, whatever you want to call it, sort of band of Republicans. Are like off the line now like they're still on the line may have shifted in terms of yeah. the content of, of what the emphasis is but there's no indication in the polling for you know, you know that like republicans are getting you know in the other direction let's say on some yeah. of these issues still directionally they still agree on most of the stuff so it's sort of like yeah but and that's the thing about cornyn is you know it allows him in some ways to sort of still be a representative of that wing of that party but then step back without too much difficulty, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think you know another what, what's just occurring to me right now is it's almost I mean, look, it's a sign of a, a few different things. It may be a sign overall, the biggest possible sense of the effects of you know more intense polarization,
1: mm-hmm.
0: ideological polarization. But you know, it's also maybe a sign to some degree of the success of that of the far right of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. That we internalize their critique of somebody like Cornyn as, oh, he's an institutional player. Well, he must not really be conservative when, you know,
1: yeah, I <laughs> not mean, so much. Yeah, I mean, You, you <laughs> mean that you mean the guy leading the gun negotiations who's basically guaranteed that. I mean, is, that we're not going to do, do much about guns it, and it's fine. Yeah. I mean, look, and this is the thing. I mean, Cornyn, this is a space he's comfortable in. He's been here before. And that's part of the thing is yeah. that he knows he can go in and basically come out and say, yeah, we didn't add any restrictions. We just made sure that the restrictions that we already had are being enforced the way that they're supposed
0: to a little bit better. Right. And we should say, you know, I'm sure people have done work on, you know, like trying to, I I know they have, you know, breaking down the dimensionality of ideological content or whatever. But I think for practical purposes in this moment, we are trying to grapple with a shift in that. And it's helpful to identify like what what they are, right? Yeah. And Cornyn does, and as we watch, you know, because, you know, as this unfolds, to bring it back to current events and, and watching it, you know, Cornyn is going to, you know, try to push this bill. Mm -hmm. You know, the question of how intensely Cruz is going (laughs) to oppose it and with what profile. And as I was working on this piece we're trying to do to write this up, it's also occurring to me that if you look at what's going on in state politics, Mm -hmm. you know, it's remarkably similar, but in a different institutional context. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's not a, ton of difference between the approach that Cornyn is taking Mm -hmm. and the approach that the governor is taking right now Mm -hmm. in terms of trying to channel this in the direction of mental health, facilities.
1: Enforcement of existing laws. You know, and enforcement
0: of existing laws. The governor, you know, on one hand, the governor and lieutenant governor are probably, you know, closer to, you know, this is a bad analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway. You know, they're closer to the ground fire from the far right. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also have the institutional advantage of really right now being able to just rather than have to do something legislatively to actually use the legislature and the bureaucracy to diffuse, Mm -hmm. you know, the urgency of action. Well, not to be too blunt about it, they wait for something else attention to, you know, fall away and for something else to come up. You know, uh, for the next podcast, that something else is probably going to be border security and immigration. But they're, you know. But it could also simply be take advantage of you know a decline in attention and salience and resume our regular programming, as I said on Twitter. I mean,
1: one thing I just you know I think we should close this out here pretty soon. But you know, one thing I mean, I think you know going through this whole discussion and again we've sort of talked about this off and on over the years and stuff. But you know, I kind of come away from it you know putting all the thing like you know John Corn is pretty impressive politician. I mean, you think about all the change that's gone on around him and and you know sort of the the factional you know the factions that have moved you know. Uh, and moved on in the Republican Party. And he yeah. just chugs along. Now like he doesn't chug along, like, you know, one of the you know most high-profiles for public policy events, you know, of recent memory happens.
0: And, and here he is, here in the middle of is. it. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, it's all the more, I mean, we were talking about this, and I, you know, it's all the more, you know, striking given, you know, the roots of his political career. I mean, and, you yeah. know, I, you know, as we, we've talked about this, but I couldn't help noticing that, you know, as as George P. Bush goes down to none other than Ken Paxton itself, another version of this discussion, Right, you know, it kind of leaves John Cornyn as the last Bush standing, you know, if not in name, certainly in his political roots and affiliation. So I think on that, I'll thank Josh for being here. Thanks again, as always, to our excellent production team in the audio studio, in the liberal arts development studio at UT Austin. You can find all all the data we've referenced today and much, much more at the Texas Politics Project website. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thanks for listening and be well, and we'll be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.